Welcome to the Soul Sessions Podcast. Deep dive into the causes and real issues underlying addiction, codependency, emotional eating, weight concerns, and the trance of unworthiness. Tune in weekly to befriend, nourish, and heal body, feelings, mind, and soul. And now, your host, soul-centered psychotherapist, trauma expert, and mind-body eating coach, Jody Gale. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Soul Sessions with Jodie Gale podcast. This episode is proudly sponsored by my Facebook group for women trauma warriors. I would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which my office is based and across which we virtually meet and pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. I extend that respect to all First Nations, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples listening to this podcast. Today, my guest is Karen Byman, and we are going to be talking about betrayal trauma and the impact this has on the sense of self and body image of straight and non-trans partners in relationship with a closeted lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender person. Karen is a registered therapeutic counsellor and coach based in Australia and working with grief, relationships and betrayal trauma. Karen's work is informed by her lived experience as the wife of a closeted gay man for 24 years. Finding herself in a mixed orientation marriage ultimately led to her work as a therapist and the founding of Not My Closet, where she provides counselling, coaching and advocacy for people going through a similar experience. Welcome, Karen. Thanks, Jodie. It's so great to be able to have this conversation with you. I'm so looking forward to speaking to you. You know, I've been waiting a long time to get you on, so I'm (laughs) glad that I finally got you here. (laughs) Yeah, it's been a while. So you mentioned briefly in your bio there, but would you share a little bit more with our listeners, a little bit about yourself and, I mean, you've just said what brought you to this work, but if you could expand on that a bit for us. Yeah, for sure. I love to actually tell my story because it's something that people who go through this experience often don't get a chance to do. Look, I wanted to be a counsellor since I was a girl <laughs> um, through other you know, experiences in my life with living with foster siblings and then the death of my baby. I had lots of losses and experiences in my life that really gave me a deep passion for coming alongside people who are suffering. Then when I found myself in a marriage that was confusing and certainly not the ideal that I expected it to be. You know, we had a song, you know how people have a song for their relationship and ours was called something like It's Got to Be Perfect, which is kind of uncanny (laughs) because it wasn't perfect. And you've understood a lot about that, you know, as time's gone by. But there were certainly difficulties and issues and it wasn't all bad. (laughs) I have four beautiful children and my baby who died. But over time, you know, the red flags became redder. (laughs) And then eventually, yes, after 24 years, my confusion was really answered when he told me the truth about his sexuality that he had been so deeply ashamed of and so secretive about he knew he'd always known but he'd always hated it and so I was his I guess the answer to this enormous problem that he had and it had such a deep impact on me and my recovery from that experience was fraught with all sorts of challenges and you know it was such a deep trauma it just cut to the heart of who I was as a person my whole identity for so long had been caught up in being a wife and a mother it was so central to my life and so to have the rug you know ripped out from underneath me in that way 
at the same time as we were unfortunately moving into state with the family and, you know, just everything fell to pieces and discovering the truth, but then being compelled to secrecy, just sort of joining him in that secrecy because he wasn't ready to come out, then led me into a very dark place of struggle where I couldn't speak to my children about it, I couldn't speak to anybody, and I was alone, interstate, no support around me, and I was really struggling. And I then turned to therapy, as I had done before, actually, after our baby had died. But the time I turned to therapy to deal with this and just saying the words out loud... Actually, the first person I think I said it to was my doctor, actually, and just saying the words, I found out my husband is gay and then just bursting into tears and just being held and heard was so powerful for my healing. And I knew then that this desire that I'd had for so long to be a counsellor that I thought would be around grief and loss, and it is that as well, but I suddenly realised I'd found my life's work and that this suffering that I'd endured, it wasn't just the discovery, it was the entire relationship felt erased. And like my, my life had been a lie, even though I'd been myself it changed everything and so it compelled me to undertake study and just it's it's become (laughs) something that I'm just so deeply passionate about um it sounds like your life's work absolutely yeah I know we're going to talk about grief and loss later on but you know what sort of comes up for me when you start to talk about all that is this really really falls into disenfranchised grief where the other person isn't ready to come out yet and then you're having to be secretive and silent around your own suffering i mean it, i find that really painful to hear that yes it's very painful to live it and it's very common um many people that i work with and that i have associations with through the support group that i run you know people are so often silenced silenced by the partner during the relationship if they raise concerns silenced after they come out sometimes the partner won't admit it so there's ongoing denial and then you know when you try to reach out for help to be told you know you should be happy for them you should support them you know you're so judgmental that you're angry at them for being themselves finally you know you should be happy you should you know Mm. shoulds and shoulds and this silencing is so damaging to somebody who's been traumatized and that's their experience and it's not often understood by very many people or you know there's sort of sayings like oh well at least they didn't have an affair with a woman imagine how awful that would be I mean that was actually said to me it's many people without that understanding of this um, sort of deep betrayal and deception that you've been sort of swept along without your own knowledge yeah the disenfranchisement is definitely a very big struggle and you're reminding me of the Brene Brown clip around um, empathy versus sympathy have you seen that clip Yes. Yes. I'm going to post it in the show notes for anyone who hasn't. And usually when something starts, you know, Brene Brown talks about usually when something starts with at least, Mm -hmm. um, it's probably not going to be a very empathic response. So (laughs) I I remember going through infertility. People would say to people, oh, at least you can get pregnant when they'd had a miscarriage. You know, it's Mm -hmm. like, are you kidding? Absolutely. (laughs) I mean, you started to talk a little bit about the type of relationship that you were in. But what are the types of relationships that we're talking about here? Do you mostly work with um, women in a similar position to you or what other versions of these types of relationships do you work with or, or do you see in this community? There is a predominance of women, for sure, whose husbands have either come out as gay and sometimes transgender. That's another whole experience. There's a lot of similarities, but there's obviously some nuances in that as well. 
There is the flip side of that. There definitely are men in this community whose wives have come out as lesbian. It's got another whole dimension to it because sometimes it's, it's a strange thing, but sometimes, you know, that's seen as hot, you know, as, like, oh, my goodness, your wife's into chicks or whatever, you know. Oh, and it's gosh. so not that for them. It's just so demoralising and it can raise all sorts of complex issues for them. So sometimes these relationships, they've actually gone into it with their eyes open and they've known that the other person was homosexual or usually that's the the experience Mm -hmm. often in religious sort of dynamics and so they sort of not felt this permission to be themselves and so they suppress that and have this relationship and it doesn't always go to plan and there's another sort of disenfranchisement there even within the kind of community of this experience it's like well, well at least you knew you made that choice how could you have you know there's shaming around that too so there are A small minority where there is sort of a gradual awakening of the person's sexuality or gender identity Mm -hmm. during the relationship, that is quite rare in my experience. Perhaps it's just that I don't see those people that don't end up coming to me. Um, But the, the ones that I know that are like that, there tends to be more mutuality, mutual respect, because there's honesty as the awakening happens. And those relationships have the best hope of kind of working out, staying together. But that's definitely a minority in my experience. Okay. And so would you just open that up a bit and tell us a little bit more about these types of relationships? Yeah, well, one of the key elements of this is the lie, the the deception and the betrayal. So people grapple with this issue of often they're, they're actually LGBT allies and suddenly their partner is coming out to them but it's a whole different experience because of the deception that's happened and sitting with that there can be some guilt around that well I shouldn't judge them for this you know oh well you know it was different back then and this sort of internal struggle around trying to make sense of their own views on um, LGBT issues and their actual lived experience with this partner who's not been honest with them and not been forthcoming so as I mentioned before it can feel like the whole relationship is erased there have actually been some situations where people have gotten an annulment because, I mean, the Catholic Church, if they've been married in that and they say that there was deception and fraud from the beginning, the marriage didn't really exist, so they wanted annulled. So it can have that real feeling of loss of the past so that, you know, their future is now forever changed. Their present relationship feels so confusing and intolerable, but the past also feels like, well, how do I make sense of that now? Was any of it real? Did they ever love me? Was I ever desired? Was the whole thing fake? You know, when we were intimate, what was that about? How did they see me? And speaking of that, that, you know, raises the issue of the impact, which we'll get to more later, of course, but the impact on the self and that Mm -hmm. sense of not having been desired. It does such harm. That's probably really one of the key things. And, oh, yes, of course, the trust issue. Because of the lying, um, there's this loss of trust and that's where it comes into the betrayal trauma element so Mm -hmm. the one that you trusted to have your back and to be your person and to be your like soulmate is the one who's actually lied to you and for many people in this experience you feel used you feel that you know you've been used to fix their problem and it just feels so unjust yeah You know, so there's often a lot of anger and rage about that. But that can take time to come out because Mm. often there's a sense of, we can call it codependency, but I don't actually overly like that word in this context. There is often a sense of appeasing the other person. You know, you've lived with someone who's been so unhappy or miserable, not all the the time, but often that's 
you see the angst and this, but you don't know what it's about. You don't know what it is. And so you try so hard to make them happier or make things better or make the relationship better, but you don't know what the actual core issue is. So it's like an unwinnable battle. Mm -hmm. Often you turn it on yourself. It's like, well, it must be me. It must be something about me. I'm not thin enough. I'm not beautiful enough. I'm not desirable. You know, what is it about me that they're not into me? You know, (laughs) this is not making sense to me. And so all this confusion and questioning of the self and the other. And so then you lose trust in yourself Mm -hmm. and your capacity to know somebody. You think, how could I be so gullible to have not seen this or not known it? You know, why, why didn't I? What's wrong with me? So the shame that the gay or, or transgender person has had that's very sad in itself, that's a whole other thing. I'm not yeah. denying any of that. But the straight partner, the non-trans partner, also ends up experiencing all sorts of deep shame. I'm just remembering a conversation that, that we had some time ago around um, the number of emails and messages you get sent trying to actually silence your work now. And I, yes. I feel like... I always feel rage when I when I hear that and I think what's tricky is because we are talking about a minority group of people who have been really, really harmed because of yes. homophobia and whatever else, but that doesn't take away from the pain that you have suffered or people in your situation. And I remember saying to you that I was really, really glad that you were speaking out and that you must continue to speak out about this because yeah. you have been silent, uh, silenced historically and, and there'll be people out there who need people like you to be talking about this stuff, oh, which is absolutely. what we're doing. So Yeah, absolutely. Like I, I take that role very seriously and, I do, mm-hmm. and sensitively because I am aware of the fact that the one who's caused harm has also experienced harm. Yeah. So it is a very, very sensitive dynamic to speak into and I'm very aware of that. And if there is offence caused, you know, I definitely try to reconcile that. But the reality is the people I'm speaking for have also experienced direct harm. And it's often referred to as, you know, collateral damage. Or yeah. Phobia. The straight partner becomes part of that whole situation. But the harm is caused by the one who was also hurt. So it's, yeah, it's a very complex dynamic and um, not easy for people to really get that. And, and we, you know, we all have mm-hmm. our own bias, of course. But I do, I hope people can really hear the stories and the reality of the experience of people going through this. I hope so. And that's why you, uh, I've got you here today. So, yeah. but look, historically, there was programs and treatments like conversion therapy. And given that we now know that, that conversion therapy doesn't work and it's damaging, what hope is there for these kinds of relationships? So what, what are the options? Well, Often what happens is that for some people there is a a willingness to consider an option of opening the relationship. If the closeted partner wants to come out, that is sometimes a solution that they want because this is the relationship that they they chose this. Um, And so if they can open it up, then it sort of feels like a solution for them. In my experience, it doesn't always go very well. The reason being that, you know, for polyamory to work, there needs to be trust Mm. and very honest communication and a very secure attachment. Those things are not existing in these relationships. And so it's not a really good foundation for an open relationship. But as I mentioned before, where there has been honesty through the coming out process, that is the most likely to survive that sort of a situation. Some choose to continue suppressing their desires or their orientation and they aim for intentional monogamy. 
again, I don't typically end up with them in, you know, in my counselling practice. The ones that I see are usually the ones where they're separating, but they grapple with that. Mm. It's, it's, the grappling can take quite some time to decide. Would you just say what intentional monogamy actually is? What does that actually mean? Yeah, so that would be the person who identifies as homosexual or transgender would intentionally choose not to act on that. Okay. They'll have the desires, but they won't act on it. They'll stay faithful to their partner. Uh Um, Okay. Good, good. But but most of the time they do end up separating and forging a new path. Yeah. Not always an easy path, but um, it becomes intolerable to stay usually. It's not unusual also for the straight partner to be given the responsibility to make that decision. So the the one who's, I wish we had short terms for this, but the closeted partner, for want of a better word, will often outsource that and say, well, you know, I'm not leaving. If you want to end it, that's up to you. And that's not always experienced as a privilege. (laughs) It's like, well, I have to call it. It's a tricky situation to get through. And I I find people can get quite stuck at that point. Yeah, gosh. And that's... um another step in not really taking ownership and responsibility for one's life really, isn't it? I mean, ultimately, if there could be mutual respect and an agreement together to grieve the ending of Mm. what didn't work and to to have awareness of each other's grief and pain and to kind of release each other, to travel forward individually and still with, you know, as much mutual respect as possible, that's the ultimate scenario where each person is free to be themselves and to live their best life and to be happy for each other. But that requires an awful lot of um, (laughs) empathy, as we said before, and a real willingness for each person to do their own work in really working through the, the issues that come up for them. The problem that's coming up for me already is that to go, you know, when I think about your 24 years, to me, at some level, there's a lack of empathy there for you anyway. So I can't imagine how that's actually drawn on at this stage unless the person... Yeah, unless the person's had the closeted partner has had a a lot of therapy and and has really worked on that because to lie to someone for 24 years, to me that says there's a lack of empathy there from the get-go. And I'm not dismissing all the issues that that person has had had to go through themselves, but... I think there's a lack of empathy for self and other is what I'm hearing. So. Yeah, well, I would say that's, I would sort of agree with that for the most part. Sometimes there is sort of a, a real awakening of some sense of re- deep remorse, but it's, you know, it's not always, that's not common. I was thinking before too, when you're asking about the relationship, in some ways, the entire relationship feels like a form of gaslighting. Just that sense of it's not about you. It's, it's all about, it's, there's so much confusion and so much, passing off of blame and and all of this whole relationship is so confusing so to kind of come out of that and somehow create magically create a better relationship separated than together is a pretty big ask one thing that can happen though is that once when there is separation and each person takes responsibility really thinking kind of existentially responsibility for their own path and their own life and their own story people can actually thrive and Mm -hmm. be happier and be so much better in themselves. And so that can be a bit of a pathway to some form of amicable Mm -hmm. relationship Mm -hmm. if that work can be done in both So tell me something, Karen, is the truth typically discovered or is it disclosed and does that have a different impact on the partner? Uh, well, it's usually discovered. Um, ah, it's really okay. Disclosed, actually, it's really discovered. Yeah, it's it's more likely to be discovered through maybe discovering gay pornography um, on the uh-huh. phone or a, a grinder account or some sort of. They what I find is that this often happens after 
say, 20 years or so where there's been so long spent with this all suppressed and then it starts to get a little bit more careless perhaps and it often seems to happen around that sort of midlife existential crisis. Mm. You know, They're starting to change their drivers, I suppose, like what matters to them and starting to want to kind of like really pursue this more but they might not still have the courage to come out because they didn't have the courage to begin with. And I think once you've made that choice and you're in that, that lie in the relationship, how do you... You know, suddenly go, oh, by the way, you know, when we got married 20 years ago, um, it's not an easy thing to just kind of come out with that. So it is more typically discovered. And unfortunately, it's sometimes actually discovered by the children in the one of the children in the relationship who might see something on daddy's computer or something that's very confusing, which is really tragic. But yeah, oh, okay. when it when it comes out that way, it uh, the harm, you know, that needs to be dealt with as well, obviously, the impact on the child. When the truth comes out from the closeted partner and they can do that in a way that is with awareness of the impact on what they've of what they've done, mm. best hope. But again, that's more rare. And it does usually seem to happen around this long, after these long years spent suppressing it, and then they just get motivated to go, I want to, as I face this second part of my life, I, I want to be myself and I, I'm, yeah. I don't want this anymore. And when there's honesty in the disclosure, that does at least provide some hope. Yeah, <laughs> and, yeah. And, you know, there can be some repair done. But if it's just discovered, then that's when you often end up with the situation where they go, I, I still don't want to come out. You've mm -hmm. discovered this, but there's no way you're allowed to tell anybody because I don't want anyone to know I'm gay. How can I do that? I can't come out after all this time. I'm so ashamed or this is working for me or whatever it is. Yeah. So you end up with a very deep dilemma then when it's like, well, how does, if they're not willing to come out, how does the straight partner then mm -hmm. come out? <laughs> and, yeah, and, and this is where it gets tricky, isn't it? Because especially when we think about the year that you would have gone through all this is that it was so shameful to be gay that I suspect the person is carrying around so much shame yes. and then the shame of lying and whatever else and and, and living the way that they've been living. So I, I can absolutely understand that from the other side and that still makes it not one little bit easier for the person that's had to be pulled into this lie. Absolutely true. So what's the impact of the relationship on the straight or non-trans partner? And you talked a little bit about gaslighting earlier, but what else happens? How long do you have, Jodie? <laughs> I've got to preempt this enough. by well, I've got to say, every time we have a conversation about this, I just feel so bereft. And I find myself thinking, I've never quite heard anything as painful as this. And I've worked with a lot of people for a long time so I know you get it look the impact the harm is so deep for most people it goes to the core of your whole identity your whole ability to trust anybody mm. and to trust yourself and to have any sense of self-confidence and that shame that you mentioned before that's just internalized into the partner who has mm. spent all these years thinking it must be me what is so wrong with me that's my wedding night you know I've waited all this time this is not unusual actually I've waited all this time to have sexual relationships with this person till we got married and we're married and now they don't want to like what's that about well, oh my goodness there's something wrong with me and so the shame goes so deep into the whole sense of self and that just has such a deep impact and and there's often shock trauma the discovery can be quite shocking at times and very destabilizing and then you're told to be quiet and silenced and you know I mean we talked about these sort of things before but it's just this sense of life is 
can feel impossible to, to recover from at times and, and people mm-hmm. really lose hope. Yeah, it's possible to heal. I can vouch for that, but mm-hmm. it is not easy healing um, and it does take time for sure, absolutely. So, look, I'd like to come back to the self-worth and body image. Obviously, that's my audience on this podcast and trauma, so um, you're in the right place here. Um, But I'd like to come back to body image and would you say more about the impact that the betrayal has on the straight or non-trans partner's body image? And then I guess what do you see in this community in terms of how people are dealing with that? Yeah, this is a really, really big issue. I actually asked recently in a support group that I run on Facebook and um, about the impact because, you know, I see it with my counselling clients, but I wanted to get a bigger picture. To be honest with you, I was literally weeping, reading these stories of women and I can feel it now just thinking about some of the things that people have had said to them about being told that they're disgusting and that they're hideous and it's almost impossible to kind of be told things like that and to be rejected and and not have it soak into your own sense of self and the way that you view your own body because you're in an intimate relationship with someone who often loathes themselves and mm. then is not attracted to you either. And mm. so there's just, it's like, it's so devoid of passion and desire, the things that we expect to have in an intimate relationship that there's just such deep sadness. I mean, I can speak for myself of just nights of crying myself to sleep, and that's really common, just feeling so alone in this relationship that should be so loving. And to, you know, not only assume that maybe it's about yourself and something about your own body, but to actually sometimes be told that as well and to be shamed for how you look, to be told if you were thinner, I would be attracted to you. You know, Mm -hmm. I'm not attracted to you because you've gained weight. It's all about that. And so you're already feeling bad about yourself and you've often turned to food to comfort yourself and then to be shamed for the outcome of that and to think that, well, that's why. That's why they're not attracted to me. It's because of how I look. And so then, you know, you internalise that and take it all on and you try harder and try harder to win them over, to get them to look at you, to get them to want to touch you, you know. To have a partner who's repelled by touch by and by looking at you, it's a natural outcome that that's going to be absorbed into the psyche of the of the straight partner, you know, and to take on the blame for that. We're actually talking about object relations and attachment theory here too because, you know, when we think about, we call it interjection, what's happening, the primary attachment figure, which is the relationship as adults, it's like the, the partner is internalising all that shame the partner's rage at not yeah. being their true self, um, their disgust, their all that. And, and when you said something like, I'm not attracted to you, I want to make it very, very clear that it's not because there's anything wrong with that person's body, it's because of the person not being attracted to that, what would you say, to that, that sex, sex or gender. That yeah, sex absolutely. or gender. And so this person is then carrying around this whole heap of stuff that does not belong to them. Absolutely true. That is so true. And it's just so sad and tragic. So difficult to get past Mm. that. Then in our conversation, I said to you, so I guess that means then too, a lot of people probably end up with disordered eating because they're trying to soothe something and they don't quite know what it is that they're soothing. Absolutely. So they're using food for self-soothing because it brings some, oh, well, there's so many reasons we, uh, 
too many to yeah. go into here. You can listen to the rest <laughs> of the podcast for that. Yeah, absolutely. There is a lot of reasons for that. And sometimes mm-hmm. it's also used as a protection absolutely. against um, a ch- the partner because the relationship gets so toxic. Yeah. And it's like, well, if they don't desire me anyway, I might as well eat and fill my body up, you know, not a soothe, but also kind of like keep them away because they don't like me anyway and I don't like me. So I'll just eat it all up. And then when the, in talking about body image, another, it, when, and you mentioned object relations, it's interesting when the partner is transgender. It's, I mean, we can't go, there's too much to go into there, but, but you know, when they desire to be the gender that you are, that's uh, very complex. You know, there'll be envy and jealousy uh, there, I imagine. Absolutely. Yes. I had never thought of that before. Yeah, there's a whole lot there. That's another whole story we probably don't have time to go into now, but there's a lot there too, yeah. Well, what I hear with that, that was the first thing I thought of. They'll be envious and jealous and actually then they'll be raging about that. Yes. It's a very dangerous mix of shadow there that's really projected onto that person who all the while has no bloody idea why. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, and they'll be they'll be yeah. picking that up in the relationship, but unless they've had a lot of therapy, they probably won't know what's going on. Yeah. Oh my goodness. <laughs> so what does the healing process typically involve, Karen? Wow, well, there's so much grief. I will say up front that, you know, I think most of us know now that the old Kubler Ross stages of grief model is not really very current and you know mm. doesn't relate well to bereavement. But in this case, I think there's elements of it that actually happen in this process because Mm -hmm. her work was originally actually about, you know, observing how people deal with terminal illness and how they go through their process of grieving the end of life, of their own life. And in this case, the terminal illness is like the marriage. So when you have that discovery, you get that shock and you go into often that denial stage of like, oh, no, it's not about that or or they're denying it, then you're denying it, all that confusion and then the bargaining, well, maybe we can stay together or maybe maybe I'll just get thinner, maybe I'll, you know, Mm. all of that bargaining that goes on and then the rage and anger comes up and the despair and then we do hope to move towards acceptance so that there can be an acceptance. This is what it is. This is the relationship that I'm in now, what do I do? What am I going to do now? So, you know, processing all of that grief and there's elements where we have one of the aspects of grief that shows up, I find, is ambiguous grief because you've been in a relationship with someone that's not quite there. Just to explain what that is for people who might not be aware, it's like it's often where they say a missing person, where the person is missing but they're still psychologically present in your life. But in this case, the person is there. So it's a bit more like, say, dementia is a form of this. The person mm. is there with you but they're not really there with you. And so when you look back on your relationship after discovering this, you realise that they never really fully showed up. And so there's this sense of loss about the past and that has to be grieved as well. So there's a lot of grief work to do. That makes me think, as you say that, that must actually make you feel like you're going mad. Oh, yes. During the process, absolutely, because you're just like, what's that about? Why are they saying that? What's that? Well, they'll recoil at your touch. Like, what? Mm. Like, it's so confusing. Or if you raise something and then there's the denial, how could you say that? That's ridiculous. Or, you know, then you go, oh, I must be wrong. So that's where the gaslighting comes in. Mm. So yeah, all of that confusion. So re, you know, working through that sense of what's real, what's true, how can I trust my gut again? How do I know what's true and what isn't? And how do I speak up for myself? How do I address things and be assertive and and 
kind of like claim my life back is a big part of the work. I just want to come back to something else as well when you said acceptance because I know some people might be like, oh, I don't want to accept that. That's not going to happen. Why should I accept that? You know, when we talk about acceptance, what we're saying is you don't have to like no. what's happening, but but they're in order to move through one's suffering, there needs to be a level of acceptance that this is what is. Yes, it is accepting what is and you can hate it. You know, acceptance doesn't have to mean joyful acceptance. It can be, <laughs> <laughs> it can be more of a, a resigned acceptance of like in, the inevitability of it. Like I can't make this any different than it is. Like this is a situation I find myself in. Exactly. And I can't change them and I can't change this reality. So how am I going to manage it now? A lot like how I feel about COVID at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> two years in I keep thinking surely I should have accepted this by now <laughs> so you also mentioned to me around the decisions that need to be made would you say more about that yeah the decisions that need to be made there can be quite a long process there sometimes you know obviously if the one partner leaves it's done but if they want to continue the relationship it, it does often trigger all sorts of sort of attachment anxiety you know can I make it on my own I need this person who will be on my team how will I date again maybe I'll just put up with this because it's got to be better than what's out there I don't know what's out there I don't know how to trust anyone else so stuck in that indecision um, there's mm-hmm. a lot of work to be done to get to a place of being confident enough to stand and go huh I think I'm worth something more than this I think I could actually have a good life because and I'm actually worthy of that so there's a lot of self-worth stuff that comes up in actually being able to step into a new life and to release this relationship so yeah raising that attachment issue that Mm. is a really big part of this because there's been that betrayal so even I find people come into this, if they have sort of a, some sense of security already, sometimes they'll move through this a bit more easily because they've got that sort of solid base to mm-hmm. return to. But because it's such a, um, a key significant relationship, it can actually really wound that secure attachment. And people have spoken of shifting from being feeling really sort of secure in relationships with people to then second-guessing everybody and second-guessing themselves and either pulling away from people and hiding from the world or clinging to anything that goes past. So there's often a lot of attachment repair to do. Also old trauma, it will often trigger things from the past and that then this becomes a catalyst for healing that. So whilst it triggers it, it also does open up the opportunity to then heal at a deeper level, which I know you'd love that. It's difficult work, but the outcome of it can be rich in meaning and really a sort of a deep recovery itself. Absolutely. And, you know, I know in our notes about this, you'd written post-traumatic growth. And I just think that I just love this term. It's a very psychosynthetic term. And one of the things that we often talk about is what is this symptom or crisis calling for us to awaken to in ourselves? And I mean, this is not early day recovery stuff. This is, you know, you've been in therapy for a couple of years. And actually, I know the Kubler-Ross, I can't remember the guy, but he's added a a six meaning. meaning. That's what we're talking about. How do I find value, meaning and purpose out of this really awful thing that's happened to me? And, you know, I mean, even us sitting here now, me interviewing you, I mean, my history is with an eating disorder. I always think 
thank goodness for this eating disorder because it's been my life's work for the last 20 something years and it actually saved me from suiciding I believe so I was able to find value meaning and purpose out of that and I think this is not an early day question to ask but at some point in the grieving process later on what is this calling for in me and I mean, you're the perfect example of that in the work that you're now doing. Yeah, what you're speaking to is so powerful. And it's definitely, you know, people in the early stage of processing this will will potentially be like, oh, my goodness, you can't talk about that because they're in the pain and trauma of it. Yeah. Over time, you know, we can grow. We can learn so much more about ourselves. Not saying, oh, it was my my fault. It was partly my fault. No, no, no. Injustice that has been done, and nothing changes that. But we can discover ourselves in deeper, richer ways, and we can find something in ourselves that was always there. That this births it forth in us, and it can be really powerful in our Mm. life and so we can shift from being filled with resentment and rage and despair and hopelessness to one of like oh wow look at me now I'm amazing. Oh, goodness. I've said this before. I remember I had this guy that I just loved and I thought I was going to spend the rest of my life with and it was in London, the clubbing scene, and we were being very naughty at the time, taking (laughs) lots of drugs, and so it was all full of, like, ecstasy and love and light, and I thought, you are just the one for me. And then he cheated on me. And do you know what I did? I actually was so angry. I thought, fuck you, I'm going to go and study psychology. (laughs) And now I think, thank you so much for what you did because actually it made me recover from my eating disorder. It made me recover from my addiction. I don't actually think he's amounted to very much. No offence. But I arrived in life because of this Mm. anger used in a really, really healthy way. And look, I do also have a history of getting stuck in anger and that's very easy to do the ang- that angry victim which we are yes. a victim oh, to yeah. something but I love that saying too around um, staying angry is like drinking poison and expecting it to kill the other person mm. <laughs> this was my oh. life for so many years <laughs> so, so true and look the anger is valid it is valid but we yeah. don't stay living there right we don't yeah, that's stay right. stuck in that anger I don't know if you've heard about the recent work of Kristen Neff who's like the self yes. guru but her most recent book I've done some training with her around fierce self-compassion oh yes oh it's really powerful work and I think it's so relevant here to this kind of healing because it is connecting with our anger but in a cathartic healing sort of recovery type of way mm-hmm. so that we're compassionate to ourselves, and we also stand up for ourselves as a way of being yep. compassionate to ourselves. so it's sort of like really harnessing that anger and using it for good absolutely and pushing through that and using it as a momentum forward absolutely and I put that in the show notes too because because I know on her website there's a lot of free resources on there. So just for people who might need that extra support. So let's move back into body healing body image again. So I know this is sort of my domain, um, <laughs> so I'll probably jump in a little bit here too. But what advice do you have about healing body image? So I know a lot of people won't realise that by yo-yo dieting and weight cycling, that actually falls into sort of disordered eating and eating disorder behaviour. And in fact, any diet I would consider disordered eating because it's not a natural relationship with food. And of course, we talked about women who are using food to soothe themselves to cope with all the trauma that we've been talking about. But from your perspective, what advice would you offer women and men listening today? You know, you're definitely the expert in this domain. And I, I, one thing that I know is that this is such important 
part of the healing as well mm. because it's such a physical sort of embodied kind of experience where you've been in a, a physical relationship with this partner and so there is all this body image impact one of the things that I think is helpful is to sort of separate out the fact that the rejection you know that you experienced in the relationship was not about your body mm. it was nothing to do with your body you couldn't have changed anything about your body to make them love you more or desire yeah. you yeah. and so in much the same way we can't find our healing through changing our body now it was never about the way we look anything about our body that caused the problem and caused all of the pain and so fixing that or have this endless cycle of trying to fix it is not the solution in a way it's a bit of a red herring because it's it's not really where the change happens and it's not it's it's such a surface sort of thing and it feeds into that shame and it just it's driven by shame and then when it doesn't work the shame grows and I mean you know all of that right you're reminding me Karen of a Janine Roth quote she says that dieting or trying to change one's body is an attempt to fix something that's never been broken Yes. And the majority of women in the world are caught in this. The majority of women are caught in this, but I imagine even more so for some of the people that you're working with. Yes, it's an endless chasm that can't be fixed by changing the body. Like mm. it never was able to be fixed that way. But because of the shame that's been taken on by the other partner putting it onto you, you know, it's so caught up in all of the relationship with food and definitely self-soothing and those habits. I also find there can be a sort of a, I can't think of the right word. It's not recklessness, but sort of like, a, well, it doesn't matter what I eat or what I do, they're never going to be attracted to me anyway. Mm -hmm. So there can be sort of this abandonment of the self. Yeah, and self-sabotage as well. Yeah. Some women find healing actually through dating and with a straight man. I know, I mean, that's just a quick fix in a way, but it's not. In some ways it, it's a, a real experience of going, oh, my goodness, it was never about me, right? But for many, because of the trust issues, that becomes, there's a real barrier there to actually moving forward in another relationship. So mm. that's not, you know, a solution and it's not enough on its own way. But see, the thing there that you're talking about, changing your body is not going to change that trust. Working on trusting people again is the actual issue. So when we talk about red herring, when it comes to weight, what Karen's talking about is we get fixated over here on the weight and on the body when actually the work that needs to be done is over here and, it, and it's usually an inside job. It has nothing to do with weight. Oh, so true. And because you haven't felt loved the body mm. stuff is just the external shell, right? It's that loss of love that, that was never met in the relationship mm. and we need to heal that. Absolutely. We need to learn to love ourselves and that starts with loving ourselves as we are here mm. and now. Our partner couldn't do that for us because of the mixed orientation relationship. It was, wasn't really possible, but we can give that to ourselves. But mm. because we've lost so much sense of self, we often need to heal with another person through therapy, through support groups, mm. through connection with others who are going through this through you know some sort of safe other that can give us a better mirror for ourselves that we we can't quite see it in ourselves yet but we can see it through that relational healing with another person so important too we're talking you know we're moving now into um, almost coming to an end but um important too so that the shame that you are carrying does not then lead into the next relationship that you go into Definitely. And that lack of trust and faith and all those kind of things. So I just think people in this situation are going to get so much out of what you're offering, Karen. I knew from the minute I met you, I just <laughs> I thought this woman has so many great things to offer just because of your authenticity and just who you are as a person, your experience. So would you share your offerings and where people can find you, please? 
Yeah, for sure. So I do provide individual counselling and I can also work with couples. That is complex work, but I'm up for it. (laughs) Um, I'm creating some therapy groups as well because for some people, they really want to heal relationally, like with another group of people who really have experienced and get that. And it also can make therapy a bit more affordable for people. I run a couple of very private secret Facebook groups that are not publicly listed. So you have to contact me if you wish to join that. And it's um, and there is a screening process that I do because it needs to be a safe space for people. Yeah, so great. You can email me directly um, at karen at notmycloset.com. And they can sign up for my email list at my website, which is simply notmycloset.com. Very easy to remember. Um, I'm also creating a private membership community. I'm going to get it off Facebook because Facebook is fraught with all sorts of on this day memories and and there's Mm. so little privacy and we keep getting told off by Facebook because people will use words like, I don't know, there's all sorts of trigger words that the algorithms pick up. So I want to get it off Facebook as well. So, um, yeah, sign up for my email list so that you can stay um, in the know about when that's coming. You can join a wait list and that's it. Oh, and I can also provide coaching. So I can provide counselling kind of globally, but not with the US and Canada, unfortunately, but I can do coaching globally. So there's lots of lots on offer and um, they can definitely reach me at my website. Fantastic. Thank you so much for coming today. And I, I want to let everyone know this is my last interview for a while and I specifically wanted to end with Karen. <laughs> so um, you'll be the last one on there for a little while. So I'm just taking a little sabbatical from interviews. I'm going to do a couple more individual episodes. I think I'll probably end at 50 just while I work on some of my own things in the background there. So if you go to the soulcenter.online, you'll find uh, Karen's episode. And I'll have the show notes and everything there as well with everything we've talked about today. So, and actually, I haven't rehearsed this in advance, but it will be thesoulcenter.online forward slash not my closet. Okay, so thanks for listening and bye for now. Thank you for listening to the Soul Sessions podcast. Loved this episode? Head over to iTunes to subscribe, rate and leave a review. It's very much appreciated. Thank you. To learn more about how you can befriend your body, feelings, mind and soul, get Jody's free 65-page ebook at thesoulcenter.online. Until next time.